The Holy Gospel for this second Sunday of Advent comes from Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my own favorite Advent traditions is to put out in our home the many, many, many nativity scenes that I have collected over the years. I've had to stop collecting them because there is officially no more room at the inn, but each one of them has a particular story or a reason why I hold on to it, because someone gave it to me or because I found it someplace traveling. They come from all over the world and are a reflection to me of how we see the image of God in all people. So there's a Mary from the Philippines and a Joseph from Nicaragua and a baby Jesus from Africa and wise men from the streets of Jerusalem. But it would not be complete without a holy family from the faraway land of Fisher Price. <laughs> when Mara and our daughter was born, we wanted her to have a nativity set that she could play with and imagine with and move around and not worry about anything breaking or being damaged. By the time she was two, this nativity set was endless fun. You could try and fit every single figure in the, inside the tiny stable, which is harder than you think, and probably good practice for kids' spatial skills. You could move the cow and the camel and the sheep into the Fisher-Price barn next door until Joseph got baby Jesus down for a nap and then had time to go looking for all the animals. You could, more than once, throw Mary across the room when you were real mad at your mom and not worry about her shattering into a million pieces, thus learning that Mary is a tough cookie. <laughs> the more that she played with this set, our daughter, the more delighted I was that she was becoming familiar with the story and finding ways to imagine it and imagine herself in it. 
Then came a day when I was picking up around the house before bedtime, and I came across the nativity set all laid out on the coffee table. To my surprise, all the figures were there. They weren't in other places, under the table or in the barn or on the floor in the kitchen where toddlers like to store their stuff. I glanced quickly to make sure I hadn't missed anybody, but no, they were there. Mary, check. Joseph, check. Animals, angel, wise men, check. But there were more people there, too. I looked closer, only to realize that also gathered around the Son of God, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and come to pay him homage, were the following additions. Wonder Woman, Batgirl, two pirates, and an airline pilot. <laughs> Just a Tuesday, apparently. Instantly, my biblical accuracy meter went off. What? This isn't right. These characters don't belong here, I said. Now, let's pause for a minute to note the many historical inaccuracies here in the Fisher-Price set, including the fact that nobody in the story has blonde hair, but for the moment, I was blind to those problems. However, Wonder Woman and Batgirl, that's a step too far. I reached down to grab them and put them away in their own bins. What are you doing here, I thought. What are you doing here? We are so accustomed to the story. We've read it, we've heard it a hundred times or more. We know the characters in the story. We know the women whom we hear about today. Elizabeth, whose pregnancy is hinted at as we start our reading for the day. Too old to be having the baby that she's having. In the sixth month of waiting for this child she thought would never come. We know Mary, who is about to receive the same angel with the same news of an unexpected baby. Only she's not too old, she's too young. Now from this side of history, you and I know what happens. We know how the story goes. We have the nativity sets. We know who belongs in there and who doesn't. We know that Mary says yes. We know that the child, the Son of God, is laid in this feeding trough in a stable because his parents were forced back to their hometown to be counted for the emperor's tax revenue. We know that this angel comes back with a bunch of other angels and sings about a baby who receives the same titles as a king, but who rules in a completely different way. No violence, no coercion, no collateral damage. But we know what happens. We know who fits in the story and who doesn't. Now, there was, of course, a time when the story wasn't done, but still happening, still unfolding. A day when Mary woke up in the morning not knowing who she would meet before she closed her eyes that night. There were moments of silence between Gabriel's announcement and invitation and Mary's eventual yes. There are so many times in the story when everything could have gone differently. It could have changed completely. Because really, when you come down to it, everything about this story is impossible. Mary, we think, was 13, maybe 14 years old when the angel arrived. We don't know much about her, nothing really about her before this, which tells us she was probably a fa fairly ordinary person living an ordinary life. We know that her fiancé has an illustrious family line descended from the house of David, but of Mary we know almost nothing at all. We do know she doesn't say yes right away. 
She has some concerns about this plan. The story tells us that she is perplexed, which could also be translated troubled and concerned. And she is that right from the start. She must know somewhere in her that a yes to this thing that's laid in front of her will have a whole host of consequences in the rest of her life. That walking through this door that's been opened is going to shut a whole bunch of other ones. She is perplexed by being referred to as favored of God. And maybe that's because she's remembering other people who were also favored by God and who were also, who were accordingly asked to do things like pick up and move to an entirely different country or go free a whole nation from slavery or confront kings and pharaohs with hard truths they didn't want to hear or sacrifice their children on mountaintops. Being favored of God is no small thing. You have to assume there would come a day when Mary would wonder whether her yes had been the right answer. Whether her first instinct of being perplexed and troubled and concerned was really the right one and she should have just shut the door and told that divine messenger to go find someone else instead. Maybe some night when she was exhausted from lack of sleep. Or maybe the day that Joseph came home and told her that God had warned him in a dream that they had to flee that the king was after them, that they, like millions of people before and after them, had to pick up everything and run, leave their homeland, and find a new life somewhere else with no idea how they would do it. And certainly the day she watched him die, her impossible baby, executed as a criminal, a victim of the violence that he rejected every day, what am I doing here? She must have thought. I don't think I belong. Everything about the story is impossible. The mother's too young and ordinary and has a lot of pretty decent objections. The father has every right to walk away, probably should have, but receives his own divine invitation to stay, and he does. It's all happening in a small, middle-of-nowhere town where nobody would expect anything particularly exciting to happen, far from the halls of power. And an angel who has the patience to wait, to let Mary have her questions and her struggles, and who will wait for her yes. Everything about this is ridiculous. Nobody in the story really belongs there. Not according to the world as we've made it. But that is good news because everything about this world is impossible too. It always has been, I suppose. But it's the things that feel impossible now, that perplex and trouble and concern us now, that keep us up at night. It's impossible, we think, to take apart a world that's been built to benefit some people and punish others. How do, you, how do you start over with that? Where do you even begin? Bless you. It's impossible, we think, to bring to a halt the unending supply of plastic 
that is choking our oceans and filling our earth and harming our children's future? Where do we even begin? It's impossible, we think, to break cycles of privilege and prejudice, of white supremacy and baked-in racism that so unfairly burden people of color and impoverish all of us, whether we see it or not. It is impossible, we think, that one day our politics could turn from partisan name-calling and turf-protecting to a true communal desire for justice and honesty and the common good. Something in us says, it's impossible. It's just all impossible. And then God comes to the most impossible group of people to do something about it. A 13-year-old girl, her totally bewildered fiancé, and a baby. That's it. They are is, as improbable as Wonder Woman or Batgirl showing up in the stable. Or shepherds listening to a choir of angels who came to sing just for them. Do you ever wonder where you are in this story? Where you belong? Ever felt like you're one of the characters that's kind of on the edge, not sure how to make your way in? What if this isn't for me, you think? What if I don't belong? Debbie Blue, who is a pastor at a church called House of Mercy in St. Paul, Minnesota, once wrote, I've been thinking maybe somebody should start a small group of guerrilla activists whose task it would be to plant shocking figures in people's nativity scenes. Families will come home and shriek when they find a superhero on the roof of their manger, manger on their fireplace mantle. Churches will be horrified to find Barbie and plastic dinosaurs on their altars. But people will pay attention. They'll look twice. They may even stop their car and get out when they see a garden troll and a pink flamingo leaning over the baby Jesus on the church's lawn. What are they doing here, they'll think. They don't belong. But maybe they do. Maybe every nativity scene should have Wonder Woman or a pink flamingo. A surprise, a shock, somebody whose job it is to catch your eye and remind us again whose story this really is and who's in charge of saying who belongs. Because that really is the most extraordinary thing about this story. That with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing gets to separate us from the love of God. Not hardship or distress or persecution or famine. Not death or life or things present or things to come. Not plastic or politics. Not all of our impossibilities can separate us from the love of God who makes room in this story for every single one of us. For with God, all things are possible. And everybody belongs. Amen.